Hey, um, I'm Jono, if I haven't met you. Well, I'm still Jono. I'm always Jono. But um, it's good to be here tonight. I'm stoked to be back, to be back for Turn 4. Who's keen? Yeah? Yeah, it's going to be good. Um, we're playing a little bit of a game tonight. The sound's a bit crazy. So every now and then you're going to hear this. And when you hear that, you all just do that. All right? And then the sound will go weird and then it'll come back. All right? We cool? Practice. There we go. Yeah, it's good. All right, cool. Maybe it won't happen. We'll see. We should make it happen once just for fun now. All right. Guys, the, the world is a bit of a crazy place sometimes, uh, I reckon. It can feel actually pretty out of control. Um, there's, there's a lot of things that can go wrong in the world. Sound can go crazy, uh, all sorts of stuff. Here in Australia, I reckon generally life feels pretty good and pretty stable. Um, but just think about this for a second. If, if you were born in Syria instead of Australia... Right now, you probably wouldn't be hanging out at a youth group reading the Bible. You'd probably be fleeing for your life from some sort of a terrible war that's going on there right now in Syria. Things are very different overseas. A few months ago, 12 Christians were executed in Iraq for being Christians. One of them was just a teenager, just a boy. A few weeks ago in America, nine young people were shot at a college in America where they go to study, and the gunman was particularly targeting Christians as he was shooting people. See, is the world out of control? When stuff like that's happening, you've got to start to wonder, well, is the world out of control? Has, has it all kind of just gotten away from God a little bit? And he's like, oh man, I've got to reel this in because things are just not going how I planned. I don't know if you ever get that feeling. And even, even if events far away in countries like Syria and Iraq and even America don't make you think that. Maybe just the things going on in your own life. There we go. We're back. Maybe just the things going on in your own life, maybe that's enough to make you feel that the world might be just a little bit out of control. So maybe you're doing the HSC right now and and you're thinking to yourself, there's a good chance I'm going to fail this thing altogether. And it just feels crazy. Um, maybe, maybe don't clap every time, all right? <laughs> we'll see how we go. Uh, maybe, maybe life at home is hard. Maybe your parents have split up or they're about to. Maybe life at school is just a mess. Your friends have been jerks to you and it just kind of sucks there. Um, maybe your problem, the thing that weighs on you, is that there are people who you desperately love, friends and family, and they don't know Jesus. And you know that one day soon, those people will rightly face the anger of a rightfully angry God. And maybe that weighs on you. Maybe that scares you. See, when you look just at the surface of things, the world can seem pretty random and chaotic. It really can seem pretty out of control. Tonight's passage pulls back the cover, though, on the world and shows us what's going on underneath the surface of all of that. It shows us what's going on underneath it all. And what we're going to see tonight is that there actually is a good God who's completely in control of all of it. That's the really good news that you're going to hear tonight. And so if we can get this truth that's held out for us in this passage tonight, then your perception of the whole world is going to be completely turned upside down. History itself will be seen in a different light if you see what's going on in this passage. It'll reshape everything for you. It'll turn your reality upside down. This is important stuff we're going to see tonight in God's Word. So let's pray that God would do that for us. Let's pray now. Join me. 
Father God, please, I pray, give us eyes to see the world the way you see it. Father, do a work among us tonight so that you push aside all the distractions and all the things that we think matter and that kind of loom large in our eyes. I pray, Lord, that you would put that stuff aside and help us to see the world the way you see it. Please, Lord, reshape our reality and help us to see things as you do. Amen. All right, now before we dig into this passage specifically, you've got to recognise that we're actually jumping into the middle of a book. You can see on the screen there, the series is called To the Ends of the Earth, Acts chapter 13 to 28. What happened to chapters 1 to 12? We did them this time a year ago, if you remember. Who was here a year ago when we did Acts 1 to 12? Sweet, that's a lot of you. That's good. So in the first half of this book, right, which we did last year, what we saw is that Acts is a book about the early church straight after Jesus has died, risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, right, he's left earth. Acts is about what happened in the church straight after that. The main man in charge of bringing this thing into being, the church Jesus, he's left. And so how's the church going to do? Well, a bunch of stuff has happened. Lots of people have been becoming Christians and this good news about Jesus' death and resurrection has been spreading out, right? One person in particular who became Christian during this time, back in chapter 9, was a guy named Paul. Now, Paul's the guy who wrote half of the New Testament, which you guys have in your Bibles there, right? But before Paul became a Christian, if you can remember... He was like the ultimate enemy of the church. He was a guy who hated Christians. He he went out of his way to bully them and persecute them and beat them. But after hearing the good news about Jesus and in fact coming face to face with Jesus, everything flipped upside down. And now Paul is on a mission from God to tell everyone about Jesus and he's a part of this thing called the church and he's not persecuting it anymore. In tonight's passage, as we start our series, chapter 13... Paul and some of his mates, they've arrived in a town. They've been going to lots of places, telling lots of people about Jesus. They arrive in a town called what? What does the passage say? Read it. Read it out loud. What does it say? Pisidion Antioch, right? They arrive in this place called Antioch, and they're there to tell people about Jesus. And so they go to the place where people talk about God. They go to the Jewish synagogue, which is like a Jewish version of a church, right? It's a temple. They go there, and the people in the temple are like, hey why don't you tell us some stuff? Please have a go at speaking. And he's like, all right, stands up and like just gives them like 40 verses of awesome sermon right in the middle of their, their temple. And so as we look at Paul's sermon, here's the first thing we're going to see as we look at this passage, and it's this. History is according to God's plan. History is according to God's plan. So his sermon starts off in verse 17, right? And he's about to, the next bunch of verses, Paul is about to remind these Jewish people of the history of their nation up until this point. He's about to tell them the whole history, right? Imagine if I was like, just quickly, I'm going to tell you guys the history of Australia for the last, you know, thousands of years. He is with me. Initially, no, that would suck, right? Paul does that in like 10 verses. He's like, I'm going to tell you about the history of our nation. But what I want you to notice is that at every point, Paul wants them to be very, very clear that it's God who's been in control of every little thing that's happened every step of the way. I want you to play a counting game. We've already played this game, right? I want you to play a counting game with me. Look at verses 17 through to 23 with me and just notice how many times he emphasizes that God did this, God did that. Look at it with me. Look at verse 17. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. 
He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With a mighty hand, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul... He made David their king, and God testified concerning him, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour, Jesus, as his promise. That's like nine or ten times. I might have missed some. The point is that at every point, in every step of this nation's history, Paul is saying, God did this, then God did that, and then after that, God did this, and then the next thing that God did was he did this. That's the way he's talking. Now, you may not have understood all the details about the Old Testament there, right? But did you catch the main headline? God did it all. (laughs) Who here studied history at school? I imagine pretty much all of you, right? You all have to do it, don't you? Am I right? Does everyone have to study history? Yeah, okay, good. You've all done it. In history, right, they ask you questions like this. They, they love to ask you questions like, what factors led to the First World War happening? And what caused the rise of Rome? And, and things like that, right? I've got an exam tip for you guys. You ready for it? You sit in your history exam and you, no matter what the question is, you turn it over. What caused Cambodia to be no, purple? You look, you look at it, right, and you go... God did it. And you try that, okay? You can do that every single time. What factors led to World War I starting? God did it. What caused the fall of Rome? God did it. What caused Alexander the Great to be able to take over half of the world? God did it. There you go. It's really easy. And I reckon, I can't promise that you'll get good marks. My suspicion is your teachers might think that you're just trying to be like smart aleck kind of thing. Maybe try it at a Christian school because they'll be like, well, technically he's right. Anyway. <laughs> Here's the point, right? At every single step, in every twist and turn of this nation's history, God was doing it. Kings come and kings go, God did it. Nations rise and nations fall, God did it all. God is the God of history. History is according to God's plan. And so, guys, when the world seems out of control, right... When things around you are pretty crazy, when you look at the news and you hear about some of the stuff that's going on out there, I suggest you do look at the news because it's important, right? Know that God is in control of that. When Christians face terrible things in places like Iraq and Syria, that's not God being like, whoa, 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 what's happening? And I've lost control. It's not like a little oopsie. He accidentally made a mistake and he hopes you get it right next time. God is good and he's in control. Guys, when you face hard stuff in your life, in the day-to-day of things going on, God is in control then as well. When families split up, God is in control. When people that you love die, God is in control. Your boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with you, God is still in control. You're sick, depressed. God's in control. When, When you fail the HSC because you wrote God did it to all the questions in your history paper, right? God's still in control. Whatever you face, know that that's the case. That's good news. Now, 
why is it comforting though? So you've heard a fact, right? God's in control. God's doing it, right? Why is that a comforting thing to know when these things actually happen? Because my guess is these things happen and you might go, well, God's in control, but this still hurts a lot and this still sucks and I don't like it still. So how is this a comfort? Ever thought about that question? You might know that God's in control, but why is that even comforting in the first place? I'll give you one thought. There's a lot of things I could say about this. You want to hear more, talk to me later, right? But I'll say one thing. Not only is God a powerful God who's in control, which is what the Bible's saying, he's actually a good God as well. So it's not just that he has the power to be in control of everything, he's actually good. And he promises that he's actually working for our ultimate good in all things, even the things that are evil and terrible and painful. He doesn't love evil, he calls evil evil still, but he's still working for good even in that. He's working for your good in all things. He's in control, he's, he's powerful, and he's good. And so take comfort in that. Even if you can't see how he's working for good, and maybe you won't ever see it until you're in heaven, trust that he's good, trust that he's in control. That is good news. It's the first thing to see in this passage tonight, but there's heaps more. I want you guys to get this. Here's the second thing. Salvation itself is according to God's plan. Salvation's according to God's plan. So look at verse 27, right? Paul's about to tell them, so he's just given the history of the world up until now, like history of Israel, right? And he's now about to tell them about Jesus. Everything's been leading to this point with Jesus coming, and now he's about to tell them about how Jesus died and how he rose from the dead. But look closely at the details as he tells them about who was in control even of Jesus' death. Look at verse 27. He says, The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. They didn't realize that he was king, right? Yet in condemning him to die on the cross, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that they read every Sabbath, right? So imagine these people, these Jewish people, have been reading the words of these prophets in the Old Testament week in, week out at the temple, and then one day they meet the fulfillment of the Old Testament, Jesus, and instead of saying, you're the king, you're the Messiah, they actually crucify him instead and they fulfill the prophecies about themselves by crucifying their king who came to them and so God prophesied it in advance and in their doing it making the evil decisions to kill Jesus they were bringing about the prophecies that were made look again at verse look at verse 29 right when they had carried out all that was written about Jesus him they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb So on the cross, a bunch of stuff happened to Jesus that was written about in advance, prophesied about, these guys carried it out. So the Bible foretold ahead of time that Jesus would come, that he would die, that he would rise again. And these guys in killing Jesus have fulfilled that prophecy. And then look at verse 30. Who's responsible for raising Jesus from the dead? Look at verse 30. It says, after he's died, but God raised him from the dead. And then look again at verse 32. Uh, We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. So Paul's point here is that the cross wasn't just some kind of accident where Jesus happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and and got killed. No, the cross was God's plan all along and Jesus' resurrection was God's power in action as he raised him from the dead. Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, our salvation 
is according to God's plan. You get that? There's a line in The Simpsons, and I'm showing my age here by mentioning The Simpsons at all. Sorry about that, right? But it's a good line, so I'll give it to you anyway. The family, the Simpson family, they're on their way to like, they're driving past like a shoe sale or something like that, and Marge looks out the window and goes, this is a perfect chance to get the kids some nice church shoes. And Bart goes, what do we need church shoes for? Jesus wore sandals. (laughs) Classic Bart, right? And then Homer goes, well, maybe if he'd had better arch support, they wouldn't have caught him, boy, and kind of comes back at Bart, right? That's, yeah, a few of you got that. That's good. Mitch laughed, so you know it was cool, right? <laughs> um, see, Homer's always a dummy, right? He thinks that Jesus' death was just some unfortunate accident. If only he had better shoes, a bit more arch support, maybe they wouldn't have caught him in the first place. No. Jesus' death, yeah, someone else has got it as well. It's definitely good now, right? You guys are all too slow for the Simpsons. You've been brought up on dumber television, apparently. No. Jesus' death... Sorry, I just ragged on every person in the room. All right, Jesus' death was the eternal plan of God since before the creation of the world. It wasn't an accident. He didn't accidentally get caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jesus' death and his resurrection is God's rescue plan for the world. So how does Jesus rescue us? What does it actually achieve, his death and resurrection? Look at verse 38 and 39. These are the best verses in this passage, I reckon. These are amazing Verses. Check out verse 38. After saying all of this, he's just proven that Jesus is the fulfillment of all this stuff. Verse 38, he says, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Jesus' death, his resurrection, means that the forgiveness of sins is on offer for us. Particularly who? Well, verse Verse 39, through, he, th- through, him, th- through him, everyone who believes is set free from sin. So Jesus' death, his resurrection is salvation for everyone who believes. Everyone who trusts in him find forgiveness for sins there. And he says in at the second half of verse 39, he says, this forgiveness of sins, a justification that you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. That word there, justification, is key, right? He says, the forgiveness of sins is on offer, a justification that you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Now, what does he mean by justification? I'll explain it to you. I got a letter in the mail inviting me to go do jury duty, right? And that was pretty cool. It means I have to go on like a legitimate jury, apparently that's a thing, and like be a part of some court case, right? Now, when I go to this court case, I want to hear all the cliches that happen in court. I'm really excited about the idea of hearing these cliches. So I want to hear like a lawyer say, objection, your honour. And I want to hear the judge say, overruled or sustained, right? I want to hear that one. I wouldn't mind it if I could somehow weave my way into being that special jury member who stands up with a verdict and says, we, the jury, would like to blow. I'd like to do that. But the best cliche is this one. I want to see the judge get his hammer thing and bang it and say, not guilty, right, at the end of the trial. I want to hear that one. Not guilty, that, that helps us get justification, right? Justification is God looking on us and banging his metaphorical hammer and declaring that we are not guilty. When you're justified before God, that's God saying you are not guilty. There is no sin to be paid for. There's no punishment for you to face. Not guilty justified. That's what it means. And he's saying that that's on offer for us. Forgiveness of sins, justified, not guilty. 
Now, how can God say that about anyone? How could God say that about any of us that we're not guilty, nothing to pay for, scot-free? How can God say that about us when actually we are sinners who do the wrong thing? How is that possible that God could do that? Well, the answer is that on the cross, Jesus was dying as our substitute. The guilty verdict was given to him instead of us, and so he faced the punishment for us. And so now we can be forgiven, guys. Forgiveness is on offer, uh, 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 not guilty, right there. Amazing news. Guys, it's about what Jesus has done and not about what you do to earn it. And he makes that really clear. He specifically says justification, right? A justification that you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. So he's saying it's a, it's a thing where you, he says you are not guilty and you can't earn this thing by obeying the rules like in the Old Testament. You cannot get right with God by keeping the rules. You must be declared not guilty because of what Jesus has done. God's rescue plan. Guys, Jesus wasn't an afterthought. He wasn't an accidental thing. He always was the plan. It was a plan that began before the creation of the world, before we even existed. So many people, right, assume that Christianity is about keeping all the rules so that you can impress God enough to one day let you into heaven. Most people kind of think to themselves, if I'm just kind of nice enough to the people that I reckon I should probably be nice to, except for the times when I fail at even being nice to the people I should be nice to, then God, I assume, will be okay with me. That's how people think about being right with God. They just assume it's all going to be okay. But we don't need self-improvement. We don't need to keep all the rules and make ourselves right. We need Jesus. We need justification. That's what we need. And Jesus is the only way, is a gift from God. And so, guys, I've just got one very simple but really important question for every single person in this room. Are you forgiven in Jesus? That's why he came. All of history has been headed to this point. And so, are you forgiven in Jesus? Is your trust in him? Because without him, guys, you have no hope of facing God alone. But with him, you have full assurance that you are right with God and that you can be with him. So guys, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus yet, can I just urge you, please do that. Put your trust in Jesus. All right, there's the first two things that this passage has got for us and it's good stuff. Here's the third and final thing and this is, this is, this is huge, right? God is on a mission according to his plan. God's on a mission according to his plan. So in a lot of what Jesus has done, this offer of forgiveness, every single person in the world, whether they even realize it or not, is left with a choice. Will you or won't you accept this offer of salvation? What are you going to do with it? So you can see the responses play out in this passage right here. Response number one is to reject Jesus. And that's what some of these guys do. Look at verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord, being taught by Paul, right? When the, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. These guys don't accept the message and put their trust in Jesus. Instead, they want to fight, they want to argue and they want to have any reason not to accept it. And so they just 
argue instead. The second response, though, is to accept Jesus, and you see that play out in verses 48 and 49. Have a look at this. When the Gentiles heard the news about Jesus, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. So on one hand, you've got people accepting Jesus. On the other hand, you've got people rejecting Jesus. In both cases, in both of those examples, right, what you can see is real people making real decisions about what they're going to do with Jesus, that they're responsible for and genuinely make for themselves. So I want you guys to be crystal clear on this, right? Hear this. If you walk out those doors tonight, refusing to put your trust in Jesus for another week, that will be because you personally made a real decision to do that. That's on you. If you walk out those doors tonight as someone who's trusting in Jesus, that will be because you personally made a real decision to do that as well. Both of those things are real decisions that you'll make. Now, understanding that, I want you to notice something strange going on in verse 48. Did you notice there's something a little deeper going on in verse 48? Have a look. So he says, the people decided to, you know, they honoured the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. So on the one hand, you've got people deciding to follow Jesus, verse 48, but then there's people who were appointed to believe and they're the ones who are following Jesus. They believed, but it was because they were appointed by God to do so. They were chosen by God. That's what that word appointed means. It's when someone else chooses you for something. God had appointed them to believe. So on the one hand, they were really in control of real decisions to choose to follow Jesus or not. And yet on the other hand, God was in control. And he'd appointed them to believe. He chose it in advance. And guys, I want you to notice, this isn't a one-off thing in the Bible, right? It's not as if, I don't know, something weird just happened and he made a bit of a typo in verse 48 here. A few chapters over, the same sort of thing is said again. Um, Look up on the screen, Acts chapter 18, right? Look at Acts chapter 18. Paul is in the city of Corinth. He's telling people about Jesus. Stuff's getting hard. And so God himself speaks to, to Paul and he encourages him and he says, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent. So keep doing stuff, right? For I'm with you and no one is going to attack you or harm you because I have many people in this city. Now, God's not saying that he's in the mob and he's connected, right? He's saying there's many people out there in this city that are not yet trusting in Jesus, but they're mine and they will do so soon. That's not just Corinth. In fact, God has people in every city and in every country. God has many people on the central coast, those that he's chosen, those who he's appointed to eternal life. Now, guys, as you look around at the world around you, you'll never know who those people are until you see them put their trust in Jesus, right? So it's not as if you can walk around working out who the people who are appointed and who aren't. You don't know that until you see them put their trust in Jesus. You'll never know yourself if you're one of those people until you yourself put your trust in Jesus. And then you go, well, I'm one of them as well. I'm trusting in Jesus. Now, here's the question. How does this work? How can it be the case that on the one hand, you've got real people making real, genuine decisions to follow Jesus or not, and they're really making those decisions, right? But on the other hand, 
You've got this, the Bible saying that actually God appoints them to salvation and God's in control. So God's doing it and they're doing it. How can both of those two things be true at once? It's pretty weird, isn't it? It's pretty puzzling. I reckon the reason we particularly find this hard to get our heads around is because we assume that God is just like us. We make an assumption that he's not that different to us. So imagine this. Imagine for a minute if I decided that I wanted to make Hazy pick his nose. I was like, I'm going to make him pick his nose. He doesn't want to, but I'm going to make it happen. How would, I, how would I go about that? I'd probably hide in the bushes at, at youth group and jump on him and kind of tackle him to the ground. I'm bigger than him, so I can weigh him down. Right? Get him on the ground, grab his hand against his will, force it into his nose, and suddenly he's picking his nose. Now, if I wanted to do that, that's what I've got, got, got to do. I've got to take away his freedom, got to take away his decision-making and make it happen. Guys, God is not like us. He is vastly different to us. And so with God, if he wants you to pick your nose and chooses it to happen, well, it will happen. Yet at the same time, it'll probably be because you chose to do it as well. And so you'll be like, I'd really love some boogers right now. And you'll go ahead and pick your nose. And at the same time, that was God choosing for that exact thing to happen. So that you really do choose and you really are a nose picker. But at the same time, God really did choose and made it happen as well. Both are 100% real, true decisions that happen. And they don't take away from each other when God's the one doing it. Does that make sense? God is different to us. And so guys, God is on a mission according to his plan. He's appointed people in every neighbourhood, in every school, in every sport team, in every chess club and World of Warcraft clan. He's appointed people in all places for eternal life. But those people will still make real decisions to follow Jesus and they'll do that and they can only do that if someone tells them about Jesus. Guys, we've got an exciting term ahead of us at EV Youth. It's going to be a big term. Week three, double up. It's an easy invite. It's a fun night. People are going to hear about Jesus. It's going to be great. Week four, Jesus Uncut is kicking off. That's the best thing you could possibly invite a non-Christian mate to. Jesus Uncut goes for four weeks. We'll clearly explain the gospel. Big stuff ahead of us. Guys, what does this stuff do for us tonight? Well, first of all, know this. God is genuinely in control and what we do really matters. See, God being in control doesn't let us off the hook when it comes to people hearing about Jesus. It actually empowers us to go and do something. See, if you go through your life, right, thinking that it's your job personally to save your non-Christian friends and family, that's going to crush you. If you walk around thinking that it's up to you to personally convert all the people around you like that's your job, it'll just weigh you down. That's not your job. That's actually God's job. God is the one who saves. It's your job to tell them about Jesus and bring the good news to them so they can hear it, but it's God who will save. He's the one who's appointed those to believe. He, he even, and, and, he, and because he's God, it means that he's powerful and he can save anyone. He saved the Apostle Paul, who was like the ultimate enemy of the Christians at the time. Brought him to Jesus, and so he can save anyone, because God is the one doing it. It's not up to you to be clever enough or whatever. God is the one saving people. So go do something about it. Secondly, guys, pray. Now, I wonder if you've ever had this thought. You've heard this stuff about 
God being in control and appointing people to eternal life. And so you wonder, why would you bother to pray when God's already chosen who he'll save? Has anyone ever had that thought? I don't know. I hear people say that. I want to say, why would you bother to pray if God wasn't in control? How silly would it be to spend our time praying to a God to save people when it's not actually up to him and it's up to us? Don't pray, just go do it if it's up to you. But it is up to God. He's in control. And so it's worth praying. Pray to the God who can and does save lives for eternity. Beg him that he'd save many people this term. Let's pray now, guys. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word tonight. And I pray, please, Lord, that the things that we've heard, although at times difficult, Lord, would be a great comfort to us. Lord, thank you that you're in control of all things. Things are hard and life is messy. Thank you that you had a plan for our salvation from the beginning. And thank you, Lord, that you are now on a mission and that you've caught us up in it. Please use us. Help us to be prayers. Help us to be people who speak about you. Amen.